Dear Father, we thank you, Lord, for many things that we have in our lives. We thank you, Father, for the the routine, the stability and peace that many of us know and take for granted. And we thank you, Father, for the consistency of access to your word, to to the truth of your word, to what we have in it every day, every week, both here in our church and as well in our own studies. We thank you for that routine and for the routine of meeting with those who share the faith that we have. And I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to witness in a culture that allows it. And we thank you, Father, for the blessings of material things in our life. We can easily oversee uh, or overlook, Father, what you've done in giving us so many good things. And we confess, Father, sometimes even those good things become distractions. We tend to love them more than you sometimes. And that's just a consequence, Father, of the flesh. But we do... We do want better. We want to walk in the light of what you've given us in your word. We want to be witnesses. We come here for that reason. We come here, Father, because we know that if we left our lives to ourselves, to our own desires, we'd be pulled so far away from you, we probably wouldn't know our way back. And yet, Father, you have uh, blessed us with a community and a place where we can meet regularly and regain that strength and walk uh, again for at least a week. And serve you in that time. We pray, Father, that you'd give us that strength again today. You'd overlook our sins as they are many before you. And we ask, Father, you would bring your mercy afresh to our life. Give us another opportunity to serve you this week. Teach us how to do it better. Show us in your word what you expect. And, Father, by the renewing of our mind, I pray that we would have a desire to serve you with greater strength. To your glory be everything we say and do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Unbelievers who look at what we do and what we believe and what we say, they can often come away feeling like we're a bundle of contradictions. On the one hand, they'll hear how we believe that we've been saved solely by faith alone and that we reject any theology about doing good works as a means to our own salvation or even to contributing to our salvation. And of course, that confuses the world. I've heard more than one unbeliever tell me in response to hearing that you can only be saved by grace through faith that, quote, That's just too easy. Have you ever heard that from someone? Because in the world, the assumption is good things come to those who help themselves. But then they hear this from us. That having been saved by faith, we now maintain that we must do good deeds and that good deeds, good works, should be the mark of a changed life in Christ. We put away sin and we seek to serve others, not as a means of salvation, but as a response to our salvation. That Jesus calls his followers to pursue good so that we can glorify our Father who is in heaven. And of course, for unbelievers, this is completely confusing. It appears to be a contradiction. They see no sense in us claiming a salvation that comes without regard to personal merit or personal effort, yet at the same time teaching that the Lord demands good works from those that he is saved. That, that theology is a serious stumbling block to every other world religion because every other man-made false religion, every other system, assumes that God does things the way we do things. That is, they assume a cause and effect reward system for heaven. That those who do good receive good and that those that do bad will receive bad. That's how the world operates. That's how they assume God operates and it makes some sense to them. So when you tell an unbeliever that it's only by unmerited favor, grace, that you're saved, 
But yet, you do good works after having received salvation. The whole thing seems pointless. It's like studying after the test has already been given. It doesn't make any sense to them. And yet, that's exactly the way the Lord has constructed the plan of salvation and the works of sanctification. And the reason He did it that way is because it brings all glory to Him and none to us. First of all, He saved us without us even lifting a finger. So He alone deserves the glory for our salvation. But secondly, when a believer begins to live an obedient life of doing the good things God has asked of him or her, that continues to bring glory to God because we're not claiming those good works as a means to our own salvation. We're not claiming them for any personal benefit in that regard. So that means our good deeds can only be understood as an act of love for the God who has saved us. Let me give you an example to show you what I mean. I want you to consider a young boy who decides on some Saturday morning to get up and wash his father's car. I know this is crazy, but let's just play, go work with me for a minute. He, he gets up on his own initiative, he decides to wash his father's car. Now he's not a son in this family because he washes a car. He was already in the family. But he got up one morning with that intention. Now I want you to also imagine that perhaps there's a neighbor who's also up early that morning, and he witnesses this good boy doing this deed. And he assumes, as he watches it take place, that the boy's father must be paying the son to do this chore. In which case, what does he conclude? He just concludes this boy is working to earn a wage. But what if the neighbor found out that the boy wasn't being paid at all? Instead, he learns that the young man simply decided to wash dad's car out of love and out of respect for his father, because he knew his father would be pleased. Knowing that, what do you think the neighbor now concludes? Naturally, what happens next is that the neighbor begins to wonder, what kind of father inspires that kind of selfless love from his children? And in that sense, you could say the boy's good deed has brought glory upon his father. And in the same way, we are called to glorify our Father in heaven through good deeds, not done out of a desire to earn anything, but out of a thankful heart for what we have already received, which brings glory to Him in a world that doesn't understand that economy. And we know by faith alone we've been adopted, made sons and daughters. But now that we're in the family, friends, the call of Scripture is glorify your Father who is in heaven. And the means by which He's asked us to do that is through a putting away of sin of a putting on the new self, which we talked about last time, and living out that new self through good works, through service. Those things will lead the world to ask the same question, what kind of heavenly father would inspire his children to live that way? That's the whole idea of sanctification. And that's where we find Paul at the end of chapter 4 and moving into chapter 5. He was, if you remember... When we were last here, he was exhorting the church to put on that new self, to disassemble the old one that we wear, our nature that we come to Christ with, and we take off the old, put on the new, so that we can let that Christ life in us shine through. That's called sanctification. It's a decision on our part to take up an inward battle. It's a fight against ourselves for the glory of God. And Paul's call to obedience to faith runs three chapters Chapters 4, 5, and 6. And when we last studied, we reached the end of one of the first of those three chapters. And in that point where we were, Paul was giving five exhortations. Remember I said there were five. We covered four last time. Each of these is a new approach to life that is consistent with our new nature. Each of these is a prerequisite to moving into a life of service. And if you remember, I said each of these five exhortations had three parts. There was a negative command. He would tell us, stop something. 
There was a positive command, start something better. And then there was a justification behind why we should do this, why we should move from one to the other. Those three parts are in each of these exhortations. We read through all five, verses 25 to 32. We only discussed four of the five. Let me just review what those five were, just naming them. The first was, stop speaking falsehoods. The second was, stop sinning in anger. The third was, stop stealing. The fourth was, put an end to unwholesome speech. And we stop there. And each of those is self-evidently a good thing, right? Just ask yourself, for example, how you would feel when someone lies to you, or how you feel when someone comes against you in anger, or if they steal from you, or if they gossip about you. How does it make you feel? Well, then clearly you understand those things are unloving, they're unholy, and that would mean they're not supposed to be part of the life of anyone who follows Jesus. But the world is defined by these things. They're so common They're so expected, to some degree they're even tolerated. For example, in the culture today, we celebrate someone who steals and gets away with it, don't we? We even have children's stories that celebrate people who steal and get away with it. We cheer those who say unwholesome things, like in a comedy routine or in a movie. My point is, it's all the more impactful then when a Christian acts differently in these areas. For the glory of God. We're standing apart in a healthy way. If you want to think of it this way, the worse the world gets, the more easy it will be for you to make a point for Jesus by simply doing what we've always been told to do. And the Lord may use that. He may use your difference to draw someone to himself, which is our mission. And I want to keep that missional mindset as we go into the text again today, because that's where Paul starts to go. And really, he's been there. But it will become increasingly evident that that's his concern from a missional point of view. Because the point of the church on the earth living a life that's called out is to be for a mission of reaching the world. And if you say you have a heart to reach the world, but you will not live a sanctified and called out life, your actions belie your statement. So that brings us to the final example, the fifth exhortation. It's at the end of four. And this will lead us into where Paul goes in chapter five. And in this last exhortation, it may seem as though there's a bunch of stuff because he lists six related behaviors. But these are not six separate exhortations. They're all wrapped under one umbrella. So let's just read it. Verse 31, I'll reread what we did last time. Verse 31, Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So Paul commands us here to put away or set aside six vices. And these vices all work together in a particular way. And let's look at each one for a second, and then I'll show you how they all conspire to create a single problem in the body of Christ. First, Paul says put away bitterness. Bitterness is the Bible's term for a festering hurt or a resentment against someone else that you can't get away from. Bitterness is the opposite of grace and forgiveness. So here's what a bitter person does. A bitter person keeps track of all the wrong things done to him or her by someone else instead of letting them go. As Barclay once remarked, every Christian should pray that the Lord might teach us how to forget. This is the issue of bitterness. Next, Paul says, put away wrath and anger. I'm going to combine these for a minute because we often see them as synonyms, but they're not. Wrath is a passionate response born out of forethought. It can come across as anger, but fundamentally it's not anger. It's aggression or abuse that is focused against someone else or something else with malice of forethought. It's an intentional act. 
Anger is, is a little different. You can see it's listed separately here for a reason. It's a different emotion. Wrath is a planned act of aggression. Anger is an unthinking, emotional response to something. So remember Paul said righteous anger can be appropriate since it is a spirit-triggered emotion that's intended to stir up in us a righteous response. Well, this is a similar emotive feeling, but it's manifested not by the spirit, but by the flesh, and it's an impulsive act that demonstrates a lack of self-control. Fundamentally, people who get angry easily are people who lack self-control in that area of their life. The next two, clamor and slander, they're also related. Clamor is a vocal outcry or an outburst that's intended to create a disruption. Like shouting over someone else in an argument so as to silence them and to verbally abuse them. Or, in a different way, you can see a boisterous, prideful display of power by a guy boasting loudly in a congested bar room, hoping to intimidate an adversary. That's clamor. Now, slander is speaking hurtful words also, but in a very different way. Let me draw a comparison. If clamor is a verbal frontal assault, then slander is the rhetorical equivalent of a knife in the back. Slander is a whisper of a false accusation about someone. It's a quiet spreading of rumor, maligning someone behind their back in the shadows, knowing it's going to find its way into the light. And then finally, Paul says, put aside malice. That's focused hatred for another person. It can be manifested in a lot of different ways. But having malice for someone else means being absolutely consumed or absorbed by thoughts of hurting them or seeing them come to harm. Having nothing but an attitude of, I want the worst for that person. That's malice. It's a preoccupation with another person's downfall. Paul asks you to put all of these together, six vices, because if you look at them together, they all work in the same way. They all work against healing and forgiveness within the body of Christ. This is for the case in which someone has injured another within the body, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And now the question becomes, how do we respond within the body to that offense? Slander them? Shout them down? Are we absorbed with thoughts of hurting them, for example, in the worst case? The problem is that from time to time, no matter who you are, no matter what group you're with, you're going to find one person injuring another person in one way sooner or later. You simply can't expect a whole bunch of different people to come together in a single body and not get some friction along the way. The friction is a product of our sin. It's, it's our selfishness, our pride, our arrogance, our thoughtlessness. Whatever it is, it comes. And we understand that this is natural, but we don't accept it and we don't ignore it. Not in the body of Christ. We came together in the first place because we wanted to help each other with our sin nature. So here's the irony. When you come together, it lets our flaws come to light. Now that comes out in the form of offenses of one kind or another. But that's the moment when gently we're supposed to encourage someone onto something better. We're not supposed to hold it against them. That's counterproductive to the whole reason we came together in the first place. But if the process involves harboring bitterness against that person who slighted you, they didn't check with you before they used that room and they moved that furniture without asking you and they complicated your life through that slight or that comment or whatever people do that's natural. Wrong, but natural. If we harbor bitterness against that person or if we have anger or if we have an unforgiving heart or if we respond with wrath or slander, we cement that person as our enemy. There goes that relationship. And secondly, if we can't shout them down or if we can't force them to do what we want, well then we've just created the environment for the next slight, for the next one-upsmanship. I mean, human nature being the way it is, as soon as someone does something to me, well, I'm going to show them. 
Well, where does that lead us? Which is why Paul issues the positive command, which is the direct response to all six vices, which is be kind to one another. Now, Paul is not just saying be nice. He's not just saying be a nice person. Look at the context. He's speaking in the context of being wronged, of having some emotional response to someone else. He's saying be kind to those who wrong you. That's the implicit context here. If you get hurt, if someone's thoughtless to you, turn around and be nice to them. And that doesn't just mean refraining from a negative response. It means going out of your way to show a positive response to someone else's negative response. Because the opposite of retribution is not merely silence. It's showing kindness to somebody. That's the hard test. You know, a lot of people think they've passed the test by simply not saying anything. Not doing what they could have done. Like that deserves credit. Jesus says, why do you be nice to people who are nice to you? Even the Gentiles do that, right? The point is, it doesn't buy you anything in God's economy to do the expected thing. Paul says, be tender-hearted. That word in Greek just means have a good heart. Have a truly forgiving heart for someone else. True forgiveness doesn't mean refraining from doing evil to them. It means going out of your way to treat them as if they had done good to you in the first place. Now, our model is found in the way the Father forgave us in Christ. That's the justification to this exhortation. He says, while we were enemies, while we were despising Christ and offending Him and everything we did, He moved first to show us kindness. He forgave us. He granted us mercy before we even knew we needed it. That was God's kindness. Remember Paul says in Romans, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. This is one of those oxymoronic Christian moments for an unbeliever. You show forgiveness to someone else because you yourself have been forgiven. We show kindness to others who don't deserve it because the Father showed it to us first. We understand how love wins over a hard heart because that's how God won us over. But the world does not understand that thinking at all. So the world, that's a crazy notion. That's like rolling over and letting the world walk all over you. That's not going to get you anywhere in this life. That makes no sense. But that's exactly the point. Because when someone else is bracing for that expected response from you, and they don't get it, instead they get kindness, when you refrain from clamoring when they expect that, and you give them soft words, kind words, what happens at that point is they are either attracted to this difference in a meaningful way, or at the very least they're puzzled by it, an opportunity for conversation might follow. But when you do what they expect, there's nothing new in that. So as we end chapter 4, as we move into chapter 5, we look back on all that Paul has commanded us as one body to do, putting on this new self, working together in the world with one spirit, by a variety of gifts, doing these things to become spiritually stronger, and so on. It all leads you somewhere. So that we can fulfill a mission of being Christ in a world that needs to know the gospel. We stand out. We set apart. We act differently. We show love when they don't. We do it as a community. It's an attractive element for those who have a heart that's open to the gospel. If you're not doing these things, if we look very much like the world does, we blend in, it's like camouflage. No one knows we're even here. So if we're going to fulfill the mission, we cannot, individually or corporately, look like the world. That's the fundamental point that Paul's making here. Yourself is supposed to change so that the community changes so that we have a mission to fulfill. Like my example of the young boy who washes the father's car. What if you take that same scene, but now while the son is out washing the car, he's cussing? Or what if he had gone over to the neighbor's yard when the neighbor wasn't looking, grabbed the neighbor's hose, dragged it over, and was washing the car using the neighbor's water? What would the neighbor think about that? Or when he was done, what if he took all the rags and he threw them in the neighbor's yard? 
You see my point? Any message he might have offered to that neighbor concerning his love for his father and his selfless act and response, all of that would have been lost in the noise of a thoughtless, unruly hooligan living like the rest of the world, and here we go again, can't anyone raise a decent kid anymore? I mean, that would have been the new message, which would have obscured the original message. And when a Christian cusses, when a Christian steals, when a Christian shows no consideration for someone else's property, or any of the many examples Paul gave in this chapter, when you do those things, forget your witness, because it just got pushed into the background. All the world sees is you're like everyone else. You might as well not even have bothered washing the car for all it gains you. And that leads us into chapter 5 with Paul moving away from discussions of the behavior we show within the body. That's the unifying principle of chapter 4. It was how we treat each other in the body and are we doing that in ways that reflect our witness well and strengthen us for the mission. Now he moves to personal behaviors that happen outside the body. This is just who you are at home, who you are at work, who we are in the world. They all are marks of our character, but they're all moving in the same general direction, which is, are you effective in your witness and therefore in your mission? Chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, or beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But... Immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting or, or which is not fitting, which are not fitting, and rather giving of thanks. Now fair warning here as we go into chapter five and later six. There's an old saying, John uses it on me occasionally when he'll say, you know, you move from preaching to meddling today. That's a funny way of saying, you know, that stuff started to hit a little close to home. I'm reading the text. I'm following it with you. We all see where it's going. I have no one's personal life in mind except my own. And so as I go through what we're going to see in 5 and into 6, I assure you sooner or later I'm going to step on somebody's toes, probably everybody's toes. And that's okay. That's why we're here. That's why this is here. But what I do want you to be conscious of as you're thinking about this is if something hits really close to home, this is not Steve telling you this. It's the Spirit of God speaking to you through the text. And then secondly, every time something gets mentioned that your wife or your husband is guilty of, don't just say, yes, see, honey. Because for every one of those, there's probably five that could come the other way. You need to be thinking about yourself, not about other people. And that's the tendency whenever we get into lists of things you should or shouldn't do in Scripture. Our first thought, typically, is to run to the people we know, rather than running to ourselves. So let's, let's really look inwardly for a while. I think all of us can pretty much find ourselves everywhere on the text, but some of these things may speak more to one person than to another. But they're all designed to move us from who we were in our old self to who we need to be in our new self under, under the direction of Christ so that we can serve Him more effectively. It starts with imitating God as His children. The word, therefore, opens the text because it comes in reference to our mission again. Paul could have opened the chapter, I think, this way. So that we may accomplish our mission... Be imitators of God. This is Paul's call to missional living for the sake of the gospel. I I was really sorry I didn't get the chance to hear Nolan when he came because he's so entertaining at times and he's so real. That's the thing I love most about Nolan. He is absolutely who he looks like. He is absolutely authentic. Warts and all. He's that way when you're with him in Juarez. He's that way when you're with him anytime. He is sold out to be a missionary for Christ despite his self-evident sin which he wears on his sleeve, which I find to be a very healthy practice. Not to defend it, he just doesn't try to hide it. 
I find that refreshing only because so often we do exactly the opposite. Our culture is just not wired to be that transparent, as it should be, actually. And so this is Paul's call to open up the cupboards, clear it out, let's look at our lives honestly, and let's think about it missionally. It's not about earning your salvation, it's not about preserving it, this is about being an effective minister, an effective representative of Christ. There's simply no other way to do it. And it begins, Paul says, with walking in love. Now, we looked at this metaphor earlier. Paul's drawing on it again. And everyone agrees with it. Everyone agrees, yeah, we have to walk in love. There's a song. We played it before the service. Walking in love. But when you see Paul's definition of what it means to walk in love, it gets a lot harder than Hallmark card theology. Paul defines it here. Notice how he defines walking in love. It means walking in Christ's footsteps, which is to say, Christ lay his life down for those who were spitting on him and whipping him at the time. He took insults, he took fists, and he returned them with sacrificial forgiveness. So the biblical definition of walking in love is self-sacrificial agape love. It's hard. It means giving up self for the sake of someone else who's doing you wrong. If they ask for your cloak, give them your shirt also. The idea that they're wrong to do what they're doing, and you're going to meet that wrong by sacrificing even more for their sake. That's what walking in love actually means. It's not about a feeling. It's about sacrificing for someone else. That's hardly what the world means, right? When the world says we should walk in love, when you see the peace rallies and the let's all just get along and love each other, that's not what we're talking about here. The love God expects is the love that mimics God. Sacrificial love. If you and I are going to show that kind of love to others, then we have to eliminate any behavior that's contrary to that result. And so what follows now is an examination of the many ways in which you have to walk in love, the ways you can fail in that. And it begins with our personal purity. Verse 3, Paul says, If you want to walk in love as Christ walked, then you can have no immorality, you can have no impurity, and you can have no greed among the saints. These things can't even be named among us, Paul says, which means there can't even be the suggestion in the culture that the body of Christ condones or participates in these things. Think about that standard for a minute. If we thought Paul was going to go easy on us here, well, it's pretty clear from the opening on the letter that he's not going to skirt any of the tough issues. He's, he's not going to let us go easy here. Immorality in the Greek language, the word for that, it describes any conduct that defiles the marriage bed. So anything that is contrary to biblical marriage is immorality, pornea in the Greek. So that would mean fornication, it would mean adultery, of course. Impurity is a broader term, it refers to any form of unholy living, like, for example, using pornography would be a form of impurity, or illegal drug use would be impurity. The word in Greek literally means being unclean. And then greed. I think greed has to be connected to the first two. It's not just on its own. So if the first two deal with impurities of the body in one form or another, sexual or otherwise, then greed would seem to be connected to that. So that would mean an uncontrolled appetite for things. In that sense, greed. So why does Paul begin with these things? Because they are the exact opposite of walking in love. Exact opposite. Walking in love means sacrificing the desires of self for the betterment of someone else, right? Well, any of these things that we just defined, these are actions, by definition, that are serving self at the expense of someone else. They're exactly the opposite mindset. For example, uh, immorality in the form of fornication. Fornication is having sex with someone before you bother to marry them. It's the most selfish form of love we've ever invented. Selfish. It's stealing something precious from someone else's future wife or husband. 
That's what we always used to tell our kids. Don't have sex with someone before you're married. You're practicing on someone else's spouse. And you're stealing something from them that that future spouse will never be able to get back. That's unconscionable selfishness. All you need is your self-gratification. You could not care less what it does to them, their future, or their future spouse. That's the worst kind of selfish love. It's about serving your own greedy desire. Rather than sacrificing self, stopping, withholding, waiting for the sake of your future spouse as well as those you would have affected. Obviously, you can say the same thing about adultery. You can say the same thing about homosexual relationships. They're all illegitimate, born out of selfishness and greed. They don't actually love the other person because they aren't for the betterment of the other person. They're just new ways we love to love ourselves while calling it love for someone else. In fact, every immorality, you could call drug abuse, pornography, any of these things, at the core of it, these are selfish acts that hurt other people, whether directly or indirectly. And therefore, Paul says, if you want to be a community of people whose focus is on the mission by attracting people to your selfless lifestyle that reminds them of God, then you cannot allow to have any of these things have a perch inside the body of Christ. You can't even have the suggestion of such things because they're not compatible. They contradict your message. They're like the little kid who's trying to send one message while sending another through his bad behavior. The very existence of these things in the body of Christ argues against the truth of our own message because we say we want the world to know Christ's love the way he loved us and then we act in ways that are exactly the opposite of what Christ did for us. In Paul's day... In, in Greek cities like Ephesus, these things were common. They became sort of norms for their day. And so Paul's concerned that some of these things would make their way into the culture of the church because the people who are being saved in Ephesus are the Greeks who practice these things. And so he's saying, you can't bring them with you. But don't think you and I are very far removed from these concerns. I mean, how many Christians today struggle with various forms of immorality, many of which I just mentioned? If that bothers you, I think it's even more troubling to know how many Christians aren't struggling with these things because they've conceded to them in their lives. They're just the norm within their lives or within the lives of the church. They're not even putting up a fight. Many churches that just accept this stuff as if, well, how are you going to avoid it? It's the life of the people we serve. In very many churches, it's common for young Christian couples to live together before marriage. And attend church that way and come to small groups and do Bible studies. And everyone knows, yeah, they're shacking it up. And they're Christian. And we don't say anything to them. We're not supposed to just drag them into the street and burn them at the stake. Right? I'm not trying to be unkind or unloving about this. But it is not loving to let them do it. It's not loving to Christ. It's not loving to the rest of the body. It's certainly not loving to them. Or Christians that talk openly about enjoying watching near-pornographic television shows and movies, which are the norm today on cable and anywhere else you can watch, right? They just share, have you seen the latest episode of so-and-so? And I'm like, you watch that? Have you not seen what's in that thing? You find that acceptable? Or kids in Christian families that use illegal drugs or alcohol, or they're caught in sexting scandals is now is the, the wave of today, right? All this stuff that goes on, we just look the other way. How can we have a witness to a world that thinks we're doing exactly the same thing they're doing? Where is this going in our walk? You've lost the message of love that Christ gave to us and entrusted us to take to the world. What our message became is just the world's message, which is love yourself at all costs. That's what the world thinks. That's what the church thinks when we do the same things. Now, here I am preaching to a small community that I know pretty well. And from what I understand of it, we're not the typical in many of these arenas, though I certainly wouldn't assume that no one in here has any of these things in their 
life now or at times past or that our kids won't get into some of these things. I'm not naive, but I don't want us to have the attitude going in that somehow that stuff's okay or that it's compatible with a Christian walk or it's just something we all have to work through. No, you don't. Put it away. Stop it. Put an end to it. It's not compatible with your walk. Finally, Paul moves from immoral behaviors to immoral speech. Verse 4. So, you know, it ain't going to get easier, friends. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, that the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. But out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, slander. Jesus says what lies in your heart finds its way out of your mouth sooner or later. So just as immoral acts from what we just read or impure acts are contrary to love, so is vulgarity, because though it may feel like a lesser form, it comes from the same source. That's how Jesus could say you you claim you don't murder, but you've hated in your heart, you've made the same mistake. His point is that the source of our behavior is the same. The sin source is the same. It acts out in various ways, and you may choose to act out in a more violent way than someone else, but at the core of what you're convicted over, you shared the same origin, the same sinful heart. So let's look at each of Paul's concerns in the area of speech. Paul starts with, Filthy speech. Filthiness in biblical terms, in terms of what the word means in Greek, it's any obscene conversation. So, for example, two men discussing a woman's body as she walks by in lurid terms, that's obscene speech. Or just using profanity, that's obscene speech. Speaking in those ways, in terms of obscenities, that's the opposite of love, again, if you use the biblical definition of love. How is it opposite? Well, remember, biblically, the definition of walking in love is sacrificing the need of self for the sake of someone else, to their betterment. Well, when you speak in these ways, you're abusing someone else. It's insensitive to those who might be justifiably offended by what they're hearing. Have you guys ever had this experience? It's happening all the time now, more and more. You're in a public setting, like on a mass transit or sitting at a restaurant, and someone's just cursing like a sailor next to you. In ways that we normally used to not hear in public. People would feel reticent to talk that way in front of other people unless it was just among friends or whatever. That kind of stuff now is typical, right? I don't know about you, but it offends me. I mean, I can live with it. I'm an adult. I don't fall down into a fetal position crying because I heard a bad word. But that doesn't mean I'm not offended. That doesn't mean it's not a problem. They're not loving anyone but themselves in that moment. This is what I find interesting about obscenities. There is probably no faster way, in my experience, to undermine your Christian witness than to engage in profane or obscene speech. It will absolutely undermine everything else you may have been doing at the moment. But by that same token, there is no more obvious and powerful way to stand apart from the world than to refrain from such speech, because the more common it's becoming in the world, the more notable it is when someone doesn't use it. I never use profanity. I don't like it. I don't use it generally. I try not to. I'll slip a once in a while and I hate it. You know, it's not who I am. And thankfully God has done that. But in a workplace where I had a chance to work, plenty of people who use profanity. I never did. Nothing ever got said about it. But there was a point later when somebody went through a tragedy and they were looking within the team for someone who could minister to that person. They weren't talking about it being a ministry. They were talking about it in other ways. But that's what they needed. Someone who could help them through a tragedy. And no one else was Christian. No one knew what to do. And I heard one guy say, well, Steve, would you help them? Or they came to me saying, would you help them? And he said this, which I never have forgotten. He says, uh, you know, we noticed you don't swear. We thought maybe you could help them. How do you connect those two dots? <laughs> but, you, but you see the point, right? Somehow in their mind, this is the logic, must have worked somehow like this in their mind, right? Steve doesn't swear. Oh, holy rollers, they don't swear. That must mean he's a, he's a man of God. He has some religious views. He must be someone who can help. 
they connected a few dots in a logical way and it brought them to thinking Steve can help this person because why? He doesn't use bad language. It's a non sequitur at first, but when you think about it, it makes sense. All I'm saying is in the culture we live in today that if you want your witness to shine, I don't know a better, faster way than just watch your tongue and watch what that does to the world around you. Next, Paul says the church is to cease silly talk. Now, this one will get a few people. It's translated in the Greek, foolish talk. And this is a broad category of speech, but here's what it generally is speaking to. Any kind of talk that is beneath us, that is beneath us. And in particular, any conversation that diminishes us in the eyes of those who we're trying to influence for Christ. So we're talking about someone whose speech patterns are not serious and weighty and meaningful, but they continually or routinely go down to meaningless things as if they were worthy of serious conversation and consideration. So I think a lot of what passes for entertainment today on the Internet, by that I mean memes, cat videos, and the kind of stuff that we circulate. And I like a good cat video once in a while. The occasional cat video can make for a good day. All right, but... But it's easy to get carried away with that sort of stuff to the point of acting juvenile. And it's interesting. I had a conversation with my son-in-law about this over the weekend because he's seen the same thing. He's in his young 20s, early 20s. But what he said was, it's become an art to be a cynic. Always a cutting comment. Always a sarcastic retort. Always a cynical view on life. Take anything serious and put a cynical statement around it and you've got a meme. If you don't know what a meme is, well, don't bother learning it. It's... My point is, you're in a group of like-minded, similarly aged people. Can anyone get really serious and authentic for very long before someone has to cut that up with a little joke and move us on to something funny and silly again, right? It's a thing of life. It's something kids do. It's not unnatural for kids. But you're supposed to move on from the silly and the frivolous at some point and begin to concern yourself with serious matters of life. And as a Christian, there is nothing more serious than appreciating eternally where you're going and where the world's going. So we should be encouraging our teens and our adults to mirror adult aspirations with adult speech patterns. Obviously, there can be moments in life when we talk in silly ways. I'm not trying to take all the fun out of life. Paul isn't trying to do that. So you can think of times like when you're entertaining a baby. Yeah, we talk in baby talk. That's obviously fine. Or even during private moments with your spouse. You know, there can be little moments we like to enjoy in silly ways with our spouse. That's fine. That's fine. That's not what Paul's concerned with. When you carry on those kind of behaviors in a public setting, talking like a baby, doing silly, repetitive things, what you're doing and you don't realize it is you're encouraging other people not to take you seriously. And here's where that becomes a problem. If that's who you are in front of friends or acquaintances, then you're going to find it really difficult to transition your conversations into serious discussions of eternal life because all they'll remember is you're the silly one in the group. They'll never think you have anything to offer them on those meaningful, weighty issues. And when they go through a tragedy in life, you will not be the person they come to for serious, life-changing advice because the last time they were with you or all the times they are with you, all they remember is you had the sarcastic joke anytime someone wanted to talk seriously. Happiness and joy in life is not a problem, but if it comes at the expense of the mission... It's a problem. And I think for many people today, the world has become so cynical that we've lost the chance to be authentic and deep in any conversation of life. And it's not just kids, not just teens. That's why Paul says, if we don't put away silly talk, we're not acting in a loving way. 
Because if you truly have love for the lost, then you guard yourself against looking frivolous or silly for their sake. Because you want to be seen as serious and thoughtful. Someone who can bring weighty counsel when they need it. Even if you can be fun along the way. People don't seek eternal advice from people who don't act like an adult. And sometimes people at 40 are still not acting much like adults. That's what Paul's saying when he means silly talk. Put all that aside. And then finally, coarse jesting. And of course we know here pretty much what he's talking about. Dirty jokes. Like the old saying goes, you know it when you hear it. Keep in mind though that this category also includes more subtle forms of dirty humor. Like double entendres. That imply something but say something else. Once again, we all know it when we hear it. We know what it was trying to imply. We get it. The thought's been put in our brain. And Paul says any kind of crude remark or coarse jesting needs to be put aside in our pattern of speech. Even making things like offhanded joking remarks about someone's spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend. You know, these, these little remarks we make for playful fun. It's somewhat sexually connotative, but just distancing ourselves enough from it that we don't look too bad. We've got to get past all that. Thomas Constable once told a story of a time he attended a wedding. And in the course of the wedding event, there was a guest at the wedding who was telling everyone around her proudly that she was the person to first get the groom drunk. That's coarse jesting. Thomas Constable said it ruined the whole event for him. It made him feel like this is a college socialites, co-eds that just want to get drunk. For him, it was a problem. That's not loving someone else. Coarse talk isn't consistent with love because, once again, you're imposing on someone else. It either offends them, or it may incite lust in them, or at the very least, it celebrates depravity. In all cases, it's contrary to love. So instead of all of these speech patterns, Paul says, use your tongue just to give thanks. And I would argue that means first to the Lord himself, and then to others for what they do for you. Be someone, make a commitment to be that person who is a blessing to other people in your mouth, in what you say. Because in that way, you're certainly going to stand apart from the world. As I said, I don't know of any way faster to be a witness for Christ in the world we have today than to make a conscious choice that you're going to use your mouth differently than what you see happening all around you. Be that guy at work who never swears. Be that woman who goes out with the gals for ladies' night and never tells a story about her husband, never has the little joke about her body or someone else's body, just stays in wholesome areas of speech. Now, you may not get invited as much. Sometimes that is the consequence, unfortunately. But let me tell you this. When one of them falls down in their life in a serious way, they're not going to call the other ladies. They're going to call you because you're the one they remember having something solid that you rested on. We just began this chapter. There's a lot more waiting for us here. He's going to move from individual purity to marriage, then from marriage to family, and then from family to our relationships in the culture and authority. So we've got plenty more we need to consider. Before we look past today, before we get into all of that later, just give some sober thought today to this week to how you're carrying yourself in the things that Paul just mentioned. And the way to remember that, friends, is that your job, like that son, in my analogy, is to glorify the Father from a thankful heart, from a holy heart, without letting your old self get in the way. Let's make that our goal this week and as we go through the rest of this book. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the conviction. I can't speak for others, Father, but I know how it affects me when I hear these things and I reflect on my own behaviors. And I know, Father, I can do better. I'll put aside the old self with a greater sense of urgency for the mission you've given us is just too important that we would let it fail for the sake of our own selfish desires. Forgive us each, Father, for those things that we know we've done. 
And help us, Father, do better with the next opportunity. Let us be that sober, loving, serious person who can enjoy a good time with others, but does it in such a way, Father, that we draw men and women to know you. That's what we care to do, Father. We ask for the privilege to do it. We ask for the patience as we endeavor to do it. We ask for the power by your Spirit to be successful in it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.